All right, welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for November 6, 2020, our weekly uh, Legal Tech Journalist Roundtable, where we talk about the week's top stories and uh, various other things that hit our fancy as we go through this. My name is Bob Ambrogi. I am the uh, author of the blog Law Sites, and I also have a podcast called Law Next, where I talk about innovation and technology in law. And uh, let's have our panelists introduce themselves. Uh, Molly, you want to start? Sure. Uh, Molly McDonough. I'm a communications consultant in the Chicago area, and I produce the uh, podcast Legal Talk Today with the Legal Talk Network. And Nikki? I am Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case, Law Practice Management Software. I write legal technology columns for the ABA Journal, Above the Law, The Daily Record, and uh, the My Case blog, among others. Um, and it's a good thing we're having this, uh, this webcast today because there's not a heck of a lot else to talk about other than legal tech this week. So this is going to be great. <laughs> yeah, Caroline. Yeah, hi, Carolyn Hill, Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider, based in the UK. We have a global audience. And uh, yes, we've been watching all week. And yes, I've been doing Zoom calls late into the night with plenty of people in the US who I don't think have drawn a sober breath for like the last few days. And it's been kind of fun. <laughs> all right, Victor. Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I'm, uh, I'm an assistant managing editor with the ABA Journal. I handle the business of law and technology. I don't know what people are talking about. It's been a very boring week here. I mean, like we've been we've been voting for Dancing with the Stars, and we've been voting for um, some other things. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, Zach. Hey there, everybody. My name is Zach Warren. I'm the editor in chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. I'm based in Minneapolis, and Minnesota actually picked a nice week to like be back up to the seventies for once. I can go outside, get a breath of fresh air. It's a good thing. I think needed this week. Yeah. Uh, Victoria. Hi everyone. My name is Victoria. I'm a reporter at legal tech news where I write about uh, legal technology and the intersection of technology and law. And I'm based in the Philadelphia area. And this article I will discuss is important, but probably more people are about other things going on in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania right now, but, you know, happy to be here. Yeah. We were counting on you for a tally on the vote count coming out of Philadelphia. So. Yes. If you stay tuned, I will tell you exactly who wins in Pennsylvania. Just. <laughs> All right. Uh, Joe. Yeah, uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law. Uh, if you joined this show because you saw Bob's tweet, I, I don't think Steve Kornacki is going to be tuning in. I think he's still busy. Um, but I, I have loved how he's become a internet phenomenon. Uh, people are making memes about him. There's like fan clubs now. So it's kind of fun. Yeah, and uh, Steve. Uh, Steve Embry, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I published the blog uh, Tech Law Crossroads, which is about legal innovation and legal technology. I left practice of law with a big law firm to start that blog a few years ago. And as Bob has pointed out, make the really big bucks. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It does feel like, uh, it does feel hard to believe that there's been anything that happened this week other than uh, the one thing that's occupied uh, so many of our minds. Even Caroline is being occupied all the way, all the way from uh, across the pond there. Um, but, uh, but a few other things did happen. And uh, so we're going to maybe talk about something other than the election, except that we actually, except that there are actually some, a couple of election related stories and maybe it's appropriate to uh, kick off with a couple of those, uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, votes that were taken that, that had at least a, 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 a tangential relationship to legal tech, uh, relationships to law and technology in a broad sense. Uh, Zach, Zach, you brought up one of those. You wanna talk about the CPRA? Yeah, I can. Um, the California ballot initiatives were really interesting to me. Prop 22, obviously, being the one that got a lot of play that Uber and Lyft threw so much, so much money into. But the CPRA also passed, which is kind of the CCPA 2.0, you could kind of say. It expanded a lot of privacy rights. 
Um, one major thing that it did, which is going to be huge for compliance professionals, is it did another category, a subcategory of personal information called SPI, um, which is has even more strict guidelines around it, which kind of brings it a little bit closer to the GDPR and some European privacy regulations. Um, so for this is obviously just for California, but I also do think it's interesting. We've been talking a lot about national privacy laws, uh, just how expansive is what California is doing going to be. Um, the fact that it passed and passed fairly easily, I think is interesting because it shows that these measures do have a lot of public support and are something that I wouldn't be surprised to see some other politicians outside of California pick up sometime soon. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I think one thing I've noticed is is that what 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 hasn't been there hasn't been as much attention on the fact that there has been legislation in probably every state in the United States very similar to what what California has been doing. I mean, they they haven't all passed, or, or very few of them have passed at this point. But I I think that uh, you're right that this is really uh, a a portending uh, portending of of things to come uh, all across the country in terms of strict privacy laws. Uh, and uh, we're going to see a lot more of that. Is I mean, is there anyone who isn't developing for GDPR already, um, you know, making sure that they're compliant? That seems to me that's what the, stand, the current standard is. Uh, yes and no. I, I mean, if you don't do business in Europe, like I know there were some major U.S. corporations that are only U.S. based that oh, said... Yeah, we just don't have the bandwidth to do something like that right now. So we're going to keep it only to the U.S. highest denominator, which at the time was CCPA. But as things start to move more in that direction, it's going to kind of be what you have to do, keeping to that highest denominator. But that bar keeps raising and raising. Yeah. I don't know the specifics of the of the California law all that well, but I, I, one of the questions also is just what what level of business they reach down to, uh, and I mean certainly the large corporations of the world are all are all getting ready for or not getting ready more than getting they have gotten ready for this they they have adapted for this, but smaller businesses are I think are very unprepared for some of these privacy laws. Um, Sorry, I clicked away for a second to get a link. Um, I definitely yeah. do agree with that. Yeah. Um, and one thing, uh, one of the things that I think was interesting in there is it expanded protections, um, classifying emails and passwords as personal data as well, um, which could have implications in major uh, data breaches in California in particular, um, yeah. opening up to, I would imagine, a lot of litigation there. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and, and Victor, you had brought up a couple uh, of the measures also that were on ballots this week. Uh, one of them from my home state here in Massachusetts. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Sure. The um, so the one near and dear to my heart was the magic mushrooms one, but uh, yeah, I'll talk. I'll talk about that. <laughs> and that's dear, near and dear to your heart. Why? <laughs> um, no. Uh, so yeah, the um, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, just like uh, I guess, yeah, there was a. Um, this ended up being the most expensive ballot measure uh, in, in Massachusetts, and uh, so I thought. I mean, I don't follow Massachusetts that closely, uh, especially not the ballot measures. But I thought it was interesting that, that this this was the one that that um, that broke the record. But basically, yeah, it just it says that um, you know it's it's uh, there was a, there was a, a question uh, uh, sent to voters about whether or not um, you know, independent repair shops can continue to. Uh, whether whether or not um, you know, to, to to make it so that they can't um, you know they, they, you know they have to keep uh, so basically uh, sorry I'm, I'm having trouble explaining this but basically it, so did so did everybody in Massachusetts use, I can tell you that <laughs> it'll, it'll require it'll require them to keep using an open data system so that so that it'll facilitate repairs and that, and that you don't have to take it to like the specific dealers to get it fixed independent car dealers can fix the cars because they can have access to the open data uh, that's that's um, that's in the car uh, the you know that's being used and so prepare, prevents people from you know using proprietary data. I think there was a issue about whether about going wireless, so that um, there was a loophole in the law that didn't include that. So this closes that loophole. So now that now that uh, this pretty much you know means that like 
you know, you have to keep using this, this, this data and, uh, you know, um, manufacturers won't be able to, won't be able to create their own proprietary data that would, um, you know, force you to have to go exclusively to them to repair for repairs as opposed to like independent uh, car uh, repairs uh, and, and um, dealers and whatnot. So I thought, I thought it was interesting because I, it's not something I ever thought about. It's just kind of like, okay, well, you just take your car, you just take your car to whoever and get it fixed. Like who cares, you know, you know, who cares what the, um, what the, what the, um, the, the, the details are who, uh, who cares what the data what, what data they're using as long as they get it done right so i never it never it never really connected in my mind that like oh well how are they gonna you know, you know how, how do they fix it how do they you know how do they get access to this kind of stuff you know how do they do this how do they do that and and you know um you know there, there's you know, there was uh, all kinds of incentives for you know companies to, to to kind of create their own data so that their own proprietary system so that then um, you know, uh, you'd have to go to them for business. So yeah, it, it was just fascinating to me because I never thought about a lot of these permutations. And so, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad that, you know, uh, it was, um, it turned out the way it did, but yeah, it was, it, it, it was pretty yeah. surprising to me. Yeah, it was, it was really confusing. And I, I have to say, I mean, I, I read so much trying to figure out how I wanted to vote on that and, and everything I read gave a different description, even of, of what it did, what data was involved in it, because yeah. Massachusetts already had a right to repair law, which gave those independent repair shops access to the data in your car. When you plug in a computer, you know, when you plug into the connection to the computer in your car, independent repair shops under master's law and probably most states laws could already get the same data that the manufacturers and dealers can get. But this had to do more with the data that your car, as I understood it, the data that your car transmits. Like if you have a newer model car that has, uh, can't even think of what it's called, a little button you sometimes see right up above the windshield where you can OnStar, like an OnStar system or something like that, where where it's transmitting data about where you are and how fast you're driving and things like that. Uh, as I understood it, this had to do more with that kind of data, which is which can raise some real interesting issues. But well, it, um, it, I thought it raised a lot of <clears throat> really interesting issues with respect to who owns data. Yeah. Um, you know, most people would, would probably say, I go out and spend... $30,000 for a car, all the data that that car generates is mine, right? Well, maybe, maybe it isn't. Now, maybe in Massachusetts it is, uh, but I, my, the interesting thing to me about it was we, we, we had the legislatures stepping in and saying, no, car manufacturers, you don't have the exclusive right to withhold that data from repair shops or even individuals, which would, would tend to suggest that they don't, manufacturers don't own the data. Um, and it's, it's really owned by all of us. Now, all of us have contracted away our, our rights to the data in more times than we can count. But the, again, the interesting thing is now that the legislature or the people in Massachusetts, I suppose, since the referendum has stepped in and said, no, 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 I don't care whether you contract away or not, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's your data, and whether you whether you signed a little waiver of that doesn't matter now. Um, yeah. That was that was I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I'm going back I, to Zach's point about the. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I also when I saw that that measure um, went was voted through on election day, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was another example of like I guess it's a win for auto um, mechanics, but now they also I think those. I would assume like small businesses, they now have, um, they have more risk now, like they have access to that personal data. And I kind of wonder like, will they put in the data breach security, cybersecurity measures to make sure like that data isn't exposed. So um, I don't know if under Massachusetts data breach law, if that type of data would be considered personal information. And if it was breached, they could maybe be held to maybe like, I don't know if it's private litigation or regulatory risk. I kind of wonder like, how are those um, companies now gonna uh, deal with having access to that type of data? Um, we're already seeing with like the CCPA, like small businesses, they're struggling with it that are under the scope of the CCPA. So I'm kind of wondering like, okay, these mechanics have access to more, maybe doing more business, but now they have to make sure that they have perhaps like cybersecurity measures in places now. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I, one of the reasons this was so heavily financed is, is not that it was being financed by independent, you know, like your the local garage down the street from your house, but by all the, the repair chains, like the Meineke's or uh, I don't know, I don't even know what all those chains are, but 
the uh, independent repair chains that are all over the place. They were really financing uh, the uh, opposing side or the pro side of this, I guess. And I guess the car manufacturers were heavily funding the right. Yeah, the opposition. Man. So that, that's why that's why it generated so much uh, so yeah. much money poured into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was this was probably the, one of the only like interesting races in Massachusetts this year, right? I mean. You know, like, like uh, I think, I think, I think Marky pretty much had his brace in the bag after he won his primary, and and we knew which way they were going to go in president in the presidential election. So I guess, really, this is this is the only one with any kind of suspense. Yeah, yeah, it's off tech, but we had the other our our other uh, ballot uh, question was on whether we should adopt ranked choice voting like uh, Maine has, uh, but that got defeated here. So. Too bad. It's a good idea. It actually, I was, I, I actually voted for it, but um, it, it, it's a complicated it's gonna, idea. Of it. I think it's going to actually have a moment because there are some states where the libertarian vote was bigger than the difference between Biden and, uh, and Trump. And I think the Republicans are going to start deciding suddenly that they love this law too. Yeah. We, we had a couple of horror story elections in Massachusetts that I think prompted the initiative in the first place where, where people got elected who really shouldn't have gotten elected by a, a small percentage out of a big pool of candidates. Uh, uh, all right, what else do we, what else is, what else is going? Caroline, tell us something, tell us some good news from. Uh... <laughs> well, I had a question. How's Kanye getting on? Is he doing well? <laughs> no, he conceded. He, he, he's getting ready for he 2024. Did he, he ask for a recount? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Um, I've learned lots of new stuff this week. I learned about a new type of food from Joe on Twitter. I forgot what it's called. What um, kind of food? What was it called, Joe? Uh, Migas. Uh eggs and tortilla mix it's a kind of a mexican breakfast sort of thing. and apparently you eat it whilst wearing pants so we decided that on twitter um so so this week <laughs> so this this week um yeah so so there are a couple of things but um so deloitte uh, one of the big four as we know bought a, a um, law firm kemp little which is a top 200 law firm um they sent it out as a press release um quite early in uk time saying that it was a landmark transaction. Um, so initially, I thought that it was just like Kemp Little had done some work with Deloitte or some things. And I think a lot of people, it seemed to take people a while to realise that actually Deloitte had bought Kemp Little. Um, and then suddenly, like, everyone sort of fell off their chair. Um, and I um, spoke, to, spoke to the management. They've been talking for about 12 months. And what's really interesting about it, so Kemp Little is not... The, I mean, there's been such a mixed reaction in terms of how significant it is. I think it's really significant. But then a lot of people have been saying, well, it's not like they bought one of the top 50, whatever. So it's the, the, they're kind of like dulling down the significance of it. But nonetheless, they bought a top 200 law firm, which is really good in telecoms. They've got some really amazing telco clients and they're really, you know, the, what's really interesting, their niche and they're really tech focused. So if you look at what people are saying in terms of, what law firms need to be to survive they either need to be obviously really high end or they need to be niche and really you know focus they are really niche and they're focused and they're really good um but their managing partner andrew joint um approached, started speaking to Deloitte about 12 months ago because he was starting to see the writing on the wall in terms of strategies like what what are we going to be so he saw that because deloitte have been putting together project management all of the tech-led stuff um and, and and obviously they've got the huge financial backing he decided they decided that really the future would be better better taken care of within this big organization um uh, and obviously the big four again and it sparked up <laughs> sparked up conversations about the 90s because obviously this is not the first time the big four have acquired law firms so then there's all of this stuff um about is this the 90s again and so it's just been really interesting and, and that's 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 i think that's probably been the thing that's caused the most chat on social media this week um in terms of like the acquisitions etc how many lawyers total does um deloitte have now it's a good question. So I wrote it. It's about, so in the UK, uh, there's in total, uh, globally, I should know this off the top of my head. Um, off, I'll post it. I'll find my article. I think it's over, they've got over 2,000, I think. In, in the UK, I'm going to find it because I'm talking shit. Um, yeah, they've got a lot. The, all, of the, all of the big four. This is the interesting thing that I made this observation, which is that um, that 
Um, and I'm going to post a really interesting paper in the chat section that I read from a few years ago, which really digs deep into the, into the rise of the big four and the growth of their, I mean, obviously it's a few years out of date, but it's brilliant. Um, they've been saying that this is not, they've been growing ever since the 90s. It's not like suddenly their legal teams have just started appearing. They've been growing for years that, you know, P, I think PwC's got over 2000. I've actually written it somewhere, so I'm going to post it in the chat. It's a lot. They've, each of the big four have got upwards of 1500. I just can't remember which way it is, um, but they've got a lot. And it's been growing for years and years. This was kind of like, and obviously um, EY bought Riverview Law and they bought Thompson Reuters Pangea 3. This isn't the first acquisition, but it's the first time they've bought a law firm since they did it around the first time around. Yeah, um, I, thought was, I thought it was a pretty big deal too uh, when I read about it. You know, right. I've written several things about um, the big four and their not so subtle motive to, to move into the legal space, particularly internationally where they can, in yeah. but also in the United States. Um, you know, they, uh, I, I listened to a panel discussion at the ILTA conference uh, with four members of the big four, and they talked a lot <laughs> about uh, focusing on enterprise solutions versus legal solutions and this holistic view yeah. of, of clients and how to serve them. And I know Bob Mark Ross was on your podcast. Uh, it was fascinating. Delight, yeah. yeah, and I remember him saying, uh, you know, we really need to look at who should really be doing what when it comes to legal work. Yeah. And this whole notion of kind of unbundling it, unbundling various pieces of legal services and then pushing them to various units within the organization to, to get the work done. And, you know, I, I was gonna, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, alternative legal service providers and, and what the future may hold for them. But to me, the, you know, once uh, the, the more the big four move into providing alternative services, the more clients are going to flock to them. One of the reasons that, that they flock to law firms for some of these alternative services now is the name recognition of the law firm. You know, it's sort of the old IBM uh, uh, motto, you can't go wrong for picking IBM. Well, you can't go wrong for picking, you plug in whatever MWAL 100 firm you want to pick there. Mm -hmm. And so there's this reluctance to say, okay, well, we'll split and split some of the work off and send it to Elevate uh, as opposed to letting it all be done at, at a law firm. If the option is instead sending it to Deloitte, who everybody knows, and most many firms are, many clients already have connections there, uh, then that's an easier easier sell to make. So to me, that's where the growth, I think, may very well come. Um, that's absolutely right. I don't think, from reading various things and speaking to clients, I think that illegal advisory, so they've had, um, they've always been known for the process and um, doing things really efficiently and, and you know, perhaps uh, being much more efficient at automation and all that kind of stuff. But the, um, the legal advisory thing I think is interesting. So some clients, you know, you'll read, they wouldn't think of going to Deloitte. And um, and I think this is where they've, you know, really decided obviously to now attack. And and, and I think by buying a law firm with existing, so, so Kemp Little's clients, for example, include BT, Reckitt, Ben Kaiser, some of the big FTSE 100 firms in, in the telecom, in, in terms of like who, telco work that they do. And, um, and then... Um, um, yeah, and I think you're right, absolutely right, Stephen. So they so they can do and they talk about, you know, they're, they're very clear, think they're very clear in the way that they think about the work, you know, whether, whether it's like project management, whether it's consultancy, whether it's advisory, whether it's, and they're, you know, productizing a lot of their work and they're being, so I think they and they're very, um, because obviously they've, they've kind of nailed it within professional services within Deloitte itself. It's like, it's almost like they have that, um, track record in terms of how to scale and how to do it efficiently it's, it's really interesting but whether they be really interesting to see with the advisory stuff um you know whether they, how who they start to compete with you know like what, what which bit of the market because some so i think some clients are still wondering whether they would go to them i think that's going to change though and there's already been several um not sure what you call them arrangements maybe the best uh, word for it in the United States with uh, law firms and uh, one of the big four. Uh, there was an immigration law firm that, that did that, and I think a couple of maybe a, a labor law firm that did that. And it's sort of sort of this effort to kind of skirt the, the ownership rules. But 
I mean, for those kind of specialties, it would make absolute sense for, for the law firm and the accounting firm. I mean, for the law firm, you've got access to thousands of clients. Right? Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, we did, we did a feature looking at the big four and their incursion into law a couple of years ago. And they, they've long been kind of seen as like the sleeping giant because it's like, because it makes sense, right? If you have an M&A deal, you have to call in, you have to call in accountants anyway to go over the books. You have to call in compliance people anyway to like determine whether or not you're violating any any like security or securities laws and whatnot. So I mean, why not just have it all in one one shop, especially with a reputable a reputable accounting firm like you know like one of the big four. You know, obviously they're not immune to you know they used to be the big I think it was the big five before that and you know mm. one of them's not there anymore. So so, so they're, not, they're not immune to, to 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 scandal and malfeasance. But you know but 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 if it makes economic sense to like have it all under one roof, then why not? And it'll be interesting to see because. You know the big the big reason why they've kind of been held at bay here is because of like like Stephen was saying the the um, uh, UPL laws and what and and, and non ownership laws and that kind of stuff. But now that some states are starting to relax those, it'll be interesting to see if that gives them like sort of a, a, a sort of a way in. So they have to market. keep order here. They're not they're not at liberty to 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 sort of cross sell quite as much as that. They have to and and um. That, so they have to kind of, and I'm, I'm not as up to speed, I'll be honest with you, as the, with the latest on this, but in terms of they have to, they're having to separate out order and, and they're having to, because there's a sort of concern about you know, being anti-competitive and all of that kind of stuff. And, and also just the um, perhaps abuse, trying to protect against potential abuses if they're doing everything. So I think they do have to have some degree of separation, but um, but yeah, I think that um, it's going to start, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And I think what's going to be really interesting is to see what, what play the other big four now? I mean, EY has obviously already been quite aggressive, but if you're really interesting to see what um, PwC and KPMG do now. Um, and Molly, yeah. in answer to your question, um, EY has over two and a half thousand um, lawyers. Yeah, they they do also have financial industry financial regula financial industry regulations that they have to adhere to, uh, mm -hmm. and and you know of course a lot of these firms are already doing. Uh, are doing financial services work for major law firms. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they have a, a potentially a, a real, they have a real potential for, for a conflict of interest. Although, um, yeah, exactly. you know, they clearly would have to spin off separate entities to do any kind of legal work in the United States if they were going to try and if, if the uh, uh, practice rules were, were simplified. I had, I had another, I had a conversation with another uh, uh, um, of the, um, um, I was going to say another of the Deloitte uh, executives recently where I like, like what he said, he said that we're, uh, I just had it in front of me. I just lost it. But basically what he said is we are, we're, we're providing the scaffolding <laughs> for uh, the different kinds of uh, services that are being offered that we can offer and that law firms are offering and that we want to be part of the whole broader eco ecosystem of delivering legal services. So they're still kind of downplaying their sort of central role as delivering legal services and, and playing it up more as, as supporting uh, the broader ecosystem. So, but that does kind of uh, lead into Steve, the uh, article that you were talking about with, with the ALSPs or the rather the, the report that came out on ALSPs. Do you want to talk about a little bit more about that? Sure. The, the report was, uh, came from Brad Blickstein and Beatrice Cirabello and uh, Zach, uh, interviewed them on his podcast uh, and, and that's where I've heard about it. And so sorry to, to, to poach on what you did, Zach, because it was a really fascinating interview, but, but their whole theory was, and they did this study of a, a number of law firms, uh, that law firms are forming these captive uh, alternative legal service providers in order to compete in the marketplace and um, uh, provide some of the services that uh, more traditional, that's the right word, uh, alternative providers are providing it. And when you looked at the numbers at first blush, it, it, it did look like there's some element of that. I mean, um, 35 of the AMLAW 100 firms, according to this study, have formed these, these captive uh, providers. Uh, but when you drill down a little bit, um, of, of those 35, only about 9% actually formed an independent entity, alternative legal service providers. The rest of them basically have units within their law firm, um, like the e-discovery e unit or something like that. And um, so, the, so the whole issue to me is, um, you know, how, 
how far are these uh, captive providers going to be permitted to, to do work that the law firm as a whole is doing, the partners and the associates were doing, because you're really cannibalizing billable hours, right? If you move it to, to, into this captive, which presumably will be uh, a cheaper and, and faster and more efficient option that you're gonna tout to your client, then that means some work that some lawyers in the firm were doing that they won't do anymore because it'll be done by this, by this captive. Um, and, you know, where we have a goal to a, a, a excess number of lawyers in a lot of, in a lot of firms, particularly at the mid-level, uh, that's going to be tough for the law firm to be willing to do, uh, I think. Um, so I'm not sure at the end of the day how, how far you can take this study other than to say, yes, it does look like there's a recognition on the part of, of uh, some of the bigger law firms that this could be important. I'm always reminded of, of uh, Aaron Street with, who, with the lawyerist who, who told me one time, you know, he said, there are law firms that want to be innovative and then there are law firms that want to say they are being innovative. Mm-hmm. And of this, of this 35, I, my guess is that, that some number of them uh, want to say they're being innovative when, when they're really not. And, and the other piece of it too is, of course, that that lawyers are terrible at ancillary businesses. There've been a lot of law firms that have tried to do this. And the problem is most ancillary businesses and alternative legal service providers are, are prime for this. Most of them are not based upon a, a business model that is the billable hour. And so that that's a fundamental sort of clash, uh, uh, it seems to be in, in making these things work. One of the offsets of it all may all be at the end, though, that that clients of these firms become more accustomed to dealing with alternative providers and more willing to look at alternative providers such as Deloitte or uh, EY or what have you, or even the elevates of the world. So by by trying this, you know, the, the firm may end up pushing people, pushing clients more toward it. I just can't see law firms undertaking the type of investment uh, in technology and maintenance in in being on the cutting edge over the long haul that that an all, a traditional alternative provider would do. So I don't know, Zach. You actually talked to these guys. You may, you may yeah. have some you may have some thoughts. You may disagree with me entirely. <laughs> well, I I mean a few different things out of that. Um, we've we did that, but we've also done a lot of reporting just on the captive ALSP kind of rising ecosystem. Um, my plug, breaking tradition on law.com, go check it out. Um, but one thing that has really popped out as I've talked to a lot of the people who have these captives is it really, it does start as e-discovery work a lot of the times. And I think that particular survey said that 80% got their start in e-discovery, something like that. But what they're trying to do progressively is go up the value chain as much as possible, whether that means contracts, whether that means kind of rote document automation, they're trying to take baby steps. And a lot of them, they really are just beginning because they started within the past five years. But as they grow and grow, they're trying to not only be a value add for the firm's lawyers, but take on separate business themselves. And that's what really I think is the ultimate end goal for a lot of these law firms is just diversifying the portfolio as much as anything else, as they're trying to compete with more outside influences like the big four who are coming into the legal space. They're saying, okay, well, if our business is being taken from X, let's try and develop Y a little bit more. And it may not work. It's completely possible that it doesn't, but I think it's worth a shot to give us some sort of outside source of income here. Yeah, Um, it was interesting that they didn't include they, they did not define the alternative service, legal service providers in such a way as to include uh, this, the 650 kind of thing that Wilson Somsini is doing, uh, which I think is, you know, may end up having a lot more traction. Um, you know, the, the, for a captive to, to try to climb that value ladder, 
Um, that's where I see them running into problems because as you're climbing that ladder, you're, you're taking work away from lawyers uh, for the firm. So, so I, I think that the, the, the issue, so, so this is more common. I think we're probably, this is a bit more, bit more normal. So Clifford Chance has got applied solutions. Alan Lovery has long had slightly, you wouldn't call it captive, but they've done derivatives work. So, so we've had for quite a long time, international but UK headquartered firms creating their own and, and it's, it's becoming increasingly common um, and the reason is I think because that there's a few reasons but they, they, they see that um, that they they will lose the work it's not it's not I mean I take your point Stephen and I think there must come a point when there's a bit of a, you know <laughs> it probably doesn't sit comfortably but I think they will lose the work because it's not going to be done within the firm at a price point which is acceptable to the client and then secondly, they want to probably approach it from a very more tech-led way. So that, and, and possibly, so for example, with Clifford Chance, they're, they're productizing a lot of their services. They've got Clifford Chance Draft, which is where they're blue, um, where they're sort of white labeling their um, automation stuff. So, so and, the, and the reason why I think they're finding it easier to do it within um, a separate company is because it's they struggle within the body of the firm to do it at the right price point because obviously as you pointed out when you're working within the billable hour when you're trying to do it within the firm itself that's when it becomes competitive right that's when you're in, in fact eating away and so by by creating a separate entity and they can almost protect it <laughs> and operate at a lower price point so they're keeping the work within the firm but they're not it's almost like they, they're um, they're not competing to the same degree that's the way I kind of feel and it seems to be yeah. working and that's why, I was, that's why I was so interested when I read that, that only 9% of them had actually set up separate <clears throat> entities where you might have a shot of having that kind of independence to be able to, to do a lot of these things like climb, you know, the, the value ladder. Um, mm. And I guess it, you know, it kind of brings me back to, to, to Aaron's uh, observation. You know, there, there are firms that truly want to be innovative and, and firms that can do this and use these captives effectively and market it and sell it and, and better their, give their clients a better service. And then there are firms that just want to say they're being innovative. Yeah. And if, if this, as you, as you push this out beyond the AMLAW 100 and get into the 200, there are a lot of firms that want to say they're innovative. <laughs> did, you, did you pick up on Recurve? The, the, I forget who's 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 at the Recurve ALSP. Do you know? Did you did you look into that, Zach? Um, the I oh, I know so, it. I can't think of it right now either. I think, um, um, I'm going to find it. Yeah. So anyway, that's got to be interesting. I'll be yep. interested because that's one of the ones in the newer ones in the US, isn't it? Greenberg Troy, that's it. Okay. So the Greenberg has got their own um captive called Recurve. I haven't heard, I haven't picked up, that was launched last year. I haven't heard much about this. Yeah, and somebody mentioned that in the chat as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. (laughs) One thing kind of to Stephen's point, though, it's kind of a fine line that a lot of these captives are trying to draw because at one point they're kind of shifting who they're competing against because they are competing against the Elevates, United Lexus, et cetera, of the world. But if you're doing that, then price point probably isn't going to be your main selling point. What is your main selling point? Your connection to the firm, the availability of lawyers, if you do need to scale up what that work is. Um, so at least people that I've talked to, I know that's Reed Smith's model with Gravity Stack um, yeah. and other well. Uh, that's kind of their selling point. So they need to be connected to the firm somehow, but how do you do that while still not having the billable hour? It's a real tightrope, um, but it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah gravity and stack. For yeah. anyone not familiar, you should look at it. They're doing some super cool stuff, which we won't talk about now, but yeah. Yeah, and that's the biggest argument. The best selling point, I think, is, is being able to have that reputation of the law firm to stand behind it, which, you know, again, is, is why the Deloitte thing was interesting to me because, you know, if, if you're a Deloitte and have the have the, the name and reputation and brand and you have a law firm that can do some of the work, you might have enough of the package to, to swing the work away from traditional law firms. Yeah. We should move on uh, to another topic. Uh, and uh, uh, Nikki, you've been kind of quiet today. What do you got this week? I don't think I hear that very often. <laughs> like I've been accused of being too quiet. It's good to hear. Um, I, uh, You're probably sitting there watching CNN as with the mute on. <laughs> no. Um, no well, I wrote. <laughs> I wrote an article for the Daily Record here in Rochester about a New York ethics opinion that caught my eye. 
Um, I always like to, uh, I always track the ethics opinions here in New York because oftentimes in New York, uh, they're, they're very active and they issue opinions on all sorts of interesting topics. And this one at first glance really was just very COVID specific, but I actually think it has um, sort of some access to justice and legal tech implications. So essentially the, uh, here, and let me post it in the chat. The issue was um, there was an immigration attorney who uh, was concerned about um, COVID and um, the immigration court was requiring uh, in-person appearances. And the attorney wanted to withdraw of counsel due to concerns about safety protocols and COVID. And the issue was, can a lawyer withdraw from representation of a client because of those concerns? And the uh, ethics committee said, uh, yeah, you know, it's, and it's basically the standard is, um, <clears throat> let me make sure that I've got this right, whether uh, representations become too difficult. And it's a flexible standard. In this particular case, what they said was that um, this attorney's reticence and, uh, to appear out of concerns. Uh, Secure, safety concerns due to COVID could affect the attorney's zealous representation in any number of ways. The attorney could possibly rush through a hearing, could encourage a quick disposition on the case. You know, it would affect all sorts of potential decisions that the attorney makes in terms of representing the client. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to act in the best interest of the client, but that these were, were valid fears that the attorney had, and therefore the attorney could withdraw as counsel uh, uh, with permission of the court, but then had to uh, take the steps that you normally have to take when you draw, withdraw as counsel to ensure that your client wasn't prejudiced. But what particularly caught my eye was, although this was seemed to be a very clear-cut issue, you know, attorney withdrawing because they're afraid of COVID, actually has a lot of legal tech and access to justice issues. Specifically, uh, if um, courts are not, during COVID, are not using legal tech effectively and are requiring people to appear in person rather than having the technology available to have these hearings occur virtually. Essentially, you are uh, putting the clients in a position of not having what I would argue is access to justice, access to the best counsel, counsel that are the most knowledgeable, the counsel that do this on a regular basis. And so it's affecting the um, representation that the clients are receiving. So I thought it was interesting for that reason, um, that, it, that the failure to, um, uh, for advice on the part of some courts to have technology in place or to put it in place at this point, it's been a while, is affecting access to justice. In this case, it's not exactly the access to justice concept we all necessarily talk about. It's, um, in this case, it's just a general broad access to justice and of access to the best possible counsel. And I thought that that was particularly um, interesting, especially since, because I'm in Rochester, New York, I like to follow um, the ethics issues in New York and how yeah. they're addressing them. I think it is interesting. I, I've seen, uh, I, I do some arbitration work and I, I've seen a number of parties that are, are not willing to do an arbitration hearing virtually, even though that option is available to them, but they're also not willing at this point to go in and conduct a live hearing. Uh, and and it's, it's usually the lawyers I'm talking about. It's not, it's not the clients they're representing. It's the lawyers are not, are, they don't want it. They don't want to do virtual. They don't want to do live. They want to keep pushing the cases down and down the calendar, hoping that, you know, eventually things will get back to normal. But in the meantime, their clients aren't getting their, you know, their day in court or, or their day in an arbitration hearing, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and, there's often tension between the council on the two different sides where one's willing to do virtual and one's not. And uh, you know, I, I, it, it, it just, it's, it's an interesting issue and you don't want to, you know, you certainly nobody, I don't think anybody wants to push somebody into having to do something in a physical context right now, if they're uncomfortable, like people have all sorts of good reasons for not wanting to be in a, in a physical hearing, even with some safety measures in, in place. You know, maybe maybe if not themselves, maybe they're caring for somebody in their home who's more susceptible or whatever. But uh, um, I, 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 I don't have any answers, but I think it's definitely going to continue to uh, uh, maybe become even more of an issue as this as this pandemic stretches on longer than anybody wanted it to. 
Um, anything else? Uh, who wants, we got uh, Victoria, what do you got? Hey everyone, um, today, well, earlier this week, I wrote an article about um, Thomas and Reuters last week, they released a press release where they looked into legal tech patents that were filed across the, um, across the globe. And China um, was the leader, they filed the, uh, China-based applicants filed the most legal tech patents uh, last year in 2019, and also in 2018, China also led um, that had that distinction. And I looked into why that is. And speaking to pretty much um, IP lawyers, they said in China, um, uh, artificial intelligence patents are very, China files the most AI um, patents. So they said that it made sense that they would also file the most legal tech patents because a lot of legal tech is fueled by, um, is powered by AI. And also one attorney who in Pillsbury and their California office, and he also spent his time before COVID-19 um, in China, he said, he noted that in China, they use, um, they have online virtual courts and that, that uh, China's legal system is a little bit younger. I think it, um, they finished putting it all together in like the early 1980s. So they can be fairly flexible and kind of adjust to technology and leveraging technology. And because there's such a lawyer shortage over in China, they the court system really encourages their, uh, their citizens to leverage legal technology to help them in the legal process. Because that, it sounds like a lot of um, Chinese citizens have to be pro se for some matters because they don't have a lawyer available to them. So legal tech is really needed over in that country. So that's one of the reasons why he said you'll see so many legal tech patents filed in China because it's so heavily relied on in that country. And also one um, person also mentioned that China, the government for um, government uh, sponsored companies, they also help subsidizing the um, patent filing, uh, uh, patent filing application for them. So that can also encourage more companies to um, file legal tech um, patents because they have a subsidy from their government. So it's kind of interesting. And with those things kind of going along and like, the lawyer shortage isn't really going to be fixed anytime soon. In China, it's likely that you'll continue to see a lot more um, legal tech patents being filed in China. Interesting. I thought it was interesting too, just from looking, uh, I mean, we all here look at the startup scene and think of it as very US centric, but I've noticed more and more, not just international legal tech companies in general, but international legal tech startups in particular oh, yeah. who have been reaching out my way, which I didn't really have probably three, four years ago, um, but have definitely seen an uptick and particularly in China. It wouldn't surprise me if that's something that continues from here on in specifically because of what Victoria is talking about. Yeah, China's been active. I mean, uh, there, there are hotspots in South America. Um, uh, Brazil has, has a number of uh, uh, legal tech startups, I mean, all over the world, obviously. But uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how, how global it is. Does anyone and, here, uh, sorry, Victoria, did you speak, did you find out about many, like, have you spoken to any of the startups that are applying for these patents in China? Because I, I, I reported on this too. Um, I didn't really look into it too much, not like you did, but I just was curious because I, and it made me think I need probably need to do more digging because it's very obviously a lot of this stuff is coming out from China, but I personally have not had too much. I've had contact with startups from Singapore um, and certainly glo global, but not so much from China, to be honest with you. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it was a little bit like my Google researching and like um, it was a little bit difficult to find like China um, based legal apps. And a lot of them, even when you do like Google Translate for English, is a little bit difficult to like get in contact with them. But it definitely sounds like a thriving market. And one of the attorneys he even mentioned like WeApp, that's an app. But he even said there's many apps inside of WeChat that's specifically for online virtual courts. So I think it's something that's definitely like thriving and kind of like understanding it. It's maybe and why I think a little bit why you see the use of um, uh, virtual courts and having like legal tech and even like apps on smartphones because you don't have that many uh, lawyers in China. So you don't have that group like in the United States to say, hey, hold on, you know, we don't want that competition, even if it is maybe for an individual civil course. Um, civil 
court matter that wouldn't make a lot of money, but from some attorneys, like we see the pushback in this country to like some uh, legal tech for the court system. And we see some lawyers saying, no, that would take away money from me. And court um, judges, when we say, well, some of these people are indigent, they wouldn't be able to pay you anyway. And they say, no, 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 you could possibly take away work. So I think kind of like that's something that's motivating in China. That's a big reason why I think you see so many legal tech patents, because you don't have that um, group saying like, no, this may take work away from me. So it's definitely, I will try to keep in check, um, trying to keep track of like the China legal sec to see kind of like, oh, how's it developing? And COVID-19, I can't see it impacting it too much because of course, a lot of people definitely don't want to go into the court system right now. I would think most people, except for what Bob was saying, some um, lawyers maybe want to say, oh, I'll just push back to go into arbitration. But I can kind of just see more people using these types of tools to remotely handle their court proceedings. Yeah, I wish I could remember the name of the company, but there were three women from China at ABA Tech Show back in March, uh, who uh, I met because they were they read my blog and they came up to me and said, "Oh, I love your blog," and I had my picture taken with them. Uh, but I got their card, and I'm forgetting I'm forgetting now their name. But they had an interesting. It was a, le a legal research company, but they had an interesting sort of AI spin on it, uh, and I can't remember the name of it right now. But uh, uh, so uh, that was fun. Um, anybody else want to comment on that before we move on? Uh, Molly, Joe, Joe, I didn't hear from you this week. I know Molly's got something you want to talk about. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, oddly related to this, um, because it's uh, related to a lot of what, uh, Victoria and, and Carolyn have been saying in terms of what consumers are used to and where the market is headed I, you know that makes a lot of sense to me that in in China uh, where the the tech was has already um, been embraced so much by the culture um, it's not a surprise that um, it's moving more quickly into legal um, and I one of the things that I've been in enjoying um, since since uh, all this lockdown is that uh, these virtual lunches that Ari Kaplan hosts. And one of the things he's been doing is that on, and Stephen knows this too, on Tuesdays, he has these um, feedback forum events uh, where he invites a legal tech vendor to come in and pit basically pitch their product and do a demo. And uh, it's, it's turned in kind of into a kind of a shark tank uh, version. <laughs> Some are very, time goes on. <laughs> some are very brutal. Some are really mellow. Most of, but there are always a lot of questions and and activity in the chat, and it's and it's been it's been interesting to kind of see that um, progress. And this week, uh, I it's it's not a new technology or a new company, um, but it's still um, in in infancy in in law firms and. Um, uh, Jared Korea came on to talk about um, with uh, Eden Field, his uh, co-founder of uh, Gideon Chatbots, uh, to talk about using bot technology for law firms. And I, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, isn't this like really common? <laughs> no, well, I'm because I'm used to bots for everything I do as a consumer, right? So, but there's, but in legal, very few law firms. Are using the technology, uh, and so it's really interesting to kind of see this development. Um, the product was really well received by this crowd, which, again, like I said, is somewhat unusual because <laughs> this is a tough crowd. <laughs> Steve, I, were you at this one? I can't remember if you were. Yeah, I was. I was. Everybody at it. was really like, even Jared was like, "Well, I thought this would be rougher," but people were really into it and excited by it. But there really isn't a lot of adoption in this space. Uh, so I, I thought that was. Um, I thought it was really interesting. What, what's the company called, Molly? Sorry, I missed it. What's the company name? Um, Gideon Chatbots. And Gideon Chatbots. Uh, um, Nikki wrote about it in yeah. January. I think there yeah. are like three others that serve legal, but Gideon is much more focused on um, the legal process and intake uh, and triage and um, routing matters. Because um, I think then, one of the reasons that so there's been a lot of funny... So Brian Inkster, who's a UK lawyer, he 
he created a series called Chats with Chatbots. And the, and the focus was to show how crap they are and how within the legal context don't work. And he would try to go onto a law firm's website and just mess with the bot and like ask it questions that it couldn't answer. And then he would post this like long article about how crap it was. So I think that, you know, that's quite, I don't think there's been an awful lot. I mean, it's chatbots are so common now, but I don't think it's interesting that, that, they, that obviously you, you rate it. Yeah, I thought it was, I was kind of impressed by the product kind of on two levels or for two different markets. Um, you know, for the smaller law firms that are often looking for individual or small business kind of clients, it would be pretty valuable just as an intake mechanism to, to kind of sift through what's real and what's a, what's a possible val- valuable valid client and who's really trying to get you to recover the $10 million that's left in the Brazilian bank account that we I get some of those every day, but a lot, a lot of general counsel will tell you that one of the things that, that they have to deal with and is very time consuming is calls about, you know, simple legal questions. Uh, you know, do I have to get this notarized or from various constituent groups within the organization? And, and I've been thinking about it, a product like this could be valuable in saving, you know, a lot of time for those very simple sort of, you know, questions that a lot of non, uh, non-legal professionals might have within an organization. So that was a pretty cool product. Yeah, and, and Jared is my, sort of my neighbor, lives not too far from me. So uh, we always say we're gonna get together and then we only meet when there's actual trade shows to go to or something. But, uh, Joe, did you have anything you wanted to bring up this week? I didn't, uh, as you might imagine, uh, <laughs> my week was spent doing slightly different things. Uh, so yeah, um, I've, I've just kind of been watching our old friend, Steve Kornacki, uh, all, all day. And, uh, yeah. Um, what else is there? To do? I, well, you know, um, so I don't know if I told everybody this. So Kornacki, like, but he was basically the last person I met before lockdown. I ran into him in a bar. I hung out with him all day. Huge college basketball fan. Super nice guy. We made plans to like, oh, yeah, no, when the tournament comes, we'll all meet here, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I was so excited. I was like, this guy's awesome. Let's hang out more. And then like the next week was now we're locking down. So uh, but it's nice to see him getting a day in the sun. Yeah, he's a, a day at night and day and night in the sun. Um yeah, I was just going to mention real quick, one story I did this week was this uh, the launch of this company. It actually launched over the summer, this, this website uh, called Zira, or is it Zyra? Now I don't know. Now I don't know. X-I-R-A. Uh, and I thought it was kind of interesting. They're, they're basically a, a lawyer marketplace site or a lawyer matching site you know, where, where potential clients can come and find a lawyer. And these those kinds of sites are a dime a dozen, I think. Uh, and, uh, I, I often don't even bother to write about them when, when they launch, but I, what I thought was interesting about this one is they're really focusing on solos and, and not only are they matching potential clients to law firms, but they are providing law firms with a fairly complete, uh, sort of backend practice management system entirely for free. So, so any, it, it, it's really only appropriate for a solo. It, it's not a full-fledged practice management solution, but any solo can go on there for free and and use it for their current cases as well as any cases they might get through this site. And it's got, you know, document management and and billing uh, and and invoicing and uh, uh, calendaring and all of that sort of thing. Plus, it's got online calendaring where the any client can come and schedule time with you. And it's got they even they even include the the Zoom video conferencing subscription. They pay for that, so you can do Zoom uh, video conferencing with your clients. Uh, and and it's all free. You pay. The only time you pay anything to them is if a client comes to the site and books and shows up for a consultation with you, then you pay them 30 bucks. So I thought that was an interesting take on, uh, on this. And they're really kind of targeting, as I say, solos or even the almost like part-time solos, people who are maybe 
you know, not even practicing full-time or something. Yeah. You nailed exactly what I was going to say, because I talked to them a little bit ago too. And that was what really stood out to me as part of their business model is I'm really targeting people who maybe haven't practiced law in five years or looking to get back into it. My law license is still active, but how exactly do I pick up people? Um, so I thought that standpoint was kind of interesting and something that I haven't seen a lot of marketplaces do be very curious if they have success with it. Yeah. Are they, are they concerned about the fee splitting? Well, I was gonna, yeah, that's what, well, it's the old marketing fee issue. You could, if you pay, if you're just paying a a flat fee per client, then I think most, most, uh, yeah. And it's actually one of the things that, that Gideon is doing differently because there are chatbot technologies out there. Um, but what they're doing is integrating more with the, the law firm systems and doing, um, kind of a flat fee instead of a per person lead, which is starting to get really expensive for, um, for law firms. Yeah. But if you call it a management well, fee or something for using the platform for the meeting, and I think, it's, well, I don't a, think it's a problem. There's a fine line though, right? And every jurisdiction approaches it a little bit differently and it can be sticky. And just because they approach it one way doesn't mean some angry lawyer is not going to bring a lawsuit, which we've seen happen in the past with other companies, or multiple lawsuits, or multiple lawsuits and ethical claims across the entire country that end up costing the company hundreds of thousands of dollars to <laughs> combat. Um, and that, you know, we we all saw that happen with one company um, years Avo, ago. Didn't, didn't Avo try something like this where well, it was like they would pay? Yeah, like that's a, exactly what like I was flat gonna... fee for yeah, like for matching, and then and then and then they had to shut down or something. Or I, I don't well, know. They, Avo's was uh, Avo's was you would you would pay? It was a flat fee for a yeah. Well, it was it was a, for a yeah. flat fee for a consultation with a yeah. lawyer. Yeah. yeah well, that's, that's what, what I was gonna say. This is exactly like this. This is not the first time this is rolled out. First of all. Um, when I was writing my cloud book in 2011, Charlie Moore reached out to me and was talking, uh, I think it was a tech show, um, a rocket lawyer and telling me how they were at that point allowing, um, I think it was documents to be uploaded and free storage and also some other um, tools in the cloud for people that use that to obtain lawyers, you know, to get clients and then continue to represent them using rocket lawyer. Yeah. And then Avo Marketplace rolled out and um, that, you know, it's not the first, and then that had a lot of these tools in the backdrop too. That was about four years before, three years before Avo got acquired. And some of that was what was problematic. And that's why they had a bunch of different um, ethics opinions against them in a number of different states. And it, that fee splitting is always tricky. And mm-hmm. you, you maybe, I thought it was not necessarily uniform across the jurisdictions, but I could be wrong. But well, I haven't seen anybody know, really fighting it for a while. Any well, ethics panel really take bringing these cases for a while. I kind of feel Avo, like they lost their yeah. steam with Avo. And when Avo got acquired, it moved out of the marketplace. But there were several states that actually, my recollection is they actually amended the rules uh, in order to allow some form of fee splitting as a result of what Avo was doing. Because of course, the big argument is it's it's an access to justice argument, right? And you right. have people that really need lawyers and there's no way to find out who they are. And that resonated with some of the state bars. I can't remember which ones they were, but there were some, there were some moves to, to amend the fee splitting rules with various guardrails put on it. At least that's but in some ways, the marketing, it's a marketing ploy, in my opinion, it always has been the access to justice through platforms like that. Access to justice is truly, when people talk about access to justice, it's people that are about to get evicted or have custody issues with their children and can't afford a lawyer. And that's not what these sites provide. They provide, help people make, write a will. You know, I mean, it's not, what the true access to justice issues, and I know I've brought this up multiple times in the past, um, I'm on the <laughs> in the minority on this, I think, but I think they're the issues that are supposed to, that were addressed by um, LSC and all the defunding of LSC is what has caused a lot of the problems at a federal level with that. But I, sometimes I think it's a little bit of a marketing ploy to claim that those sites solve the access to justice issue. And I don't, I don't actually see that. Oh, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think a lot of these sites claim, uh, uh, you know, I mean, you know, what they're saying, what Zira is saying and, and is that they're going to help lawyers 
charge less by by giving them all the software for free and making it easier for them to find clients. And maybe that will, you know, it's an access to justice issue. It's an access to justice issue to a degree. I mean, it it, it does maybe provide some more lawyers at a more affordable rate, but you're right. It doesn't get to the core issues of, of access to justice that, that the Legal Services Corporation. But, if, but if it's like small, small firms, so I was talking um, the other day with somebody um, who's thinking about offering free license licenses to small law firms because they're struggling to survive and I actually ended up reaching out to the law society and we're going to meet next week or chat next week to talk about how because it's really interesting that they should be doing you know they should be able to use tech quite efficiently to be able to work you know remotely and all of this kind of stuff but actually some of the smaller firms I think are the ones that are really struggling aren't they like they don't have the expertise and and they're doing using quite traditional processes when in actual fact it shouldn't be that difficult for them to, to, to become pretty tech forward, but it seems to be so from statistics from our, the UK Law Society, but they said um, during COVID, they said 66% of high street firms reckon that they couldn't survive COVID. So kind of, kind of there's an access to justice, um, I'll take Nikki's point, but there's kind of an access to justice point there in terms of just enable, enabling them to operate if they, if they are struggling to use technology, which a lot of them are. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with you, Nikki. I think I, I probably misspoke. It's really more of a consumer uh, uh, consumer benefit, if you will, <clears throat> because most consumers, particularly individual consumers, but a lot of small businesses, they don't know how to hire a lawyer. They don't know how to assess a lawyer. They don't know what what lawyer to call. And, you know, the only thing they know is what appears in either social media or on, t- on TV and um, you know, that's, that may not be the most, the, the best way to hire a lawyer and learn about a lawyer. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's access to justice, maybe in a sort of an indirect sense. It's really more consumer access, I think, now that I've thought about it. I had a, I had a different question, though, Bob. Did they, did they show you the software? Is it any good? I mean, like, I mean, they're giving it away for free seems kind of a red flag, but I mean. Well, it's very rudimentary. I mean, it, it, it's it's you know it's dot like I said, document management. You can do invoicing. You can get paid through the platform, although they charge extra if you're gonna if you want to accept e e payments. Um, but I mean, it's it and the calendaring integrates with your uh, whatever calendar you're using, uh, whether it's Outlook or, or Google. Um, you know, so I mean, it's it's very basic. Uh, you know, lists of cases and, and contact information and calendaring stuff. Um, as I say, there's no ability to, to uh, uh, collaborate with others or share information with others in a firm. It's a one person set of products. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, but it's fine for a solo. I, I, I think it it, it it doesn't have everything you'd want uh, necessarily. It, and it doesn't have accounting or anything like that, of course. And I don't even think it, I forget whether it even integrates with an accounting platform, but uh, I don't think it does. Um, but Molly, maybe we should recommend that they go into Shark Tank on Tuesday. <laughs> we'll find out. I'm, I'm like, I'm bummed because I missed so many of them because I used to have a conflict on Tuesdays. And now I'm just like, I'm obsessed. It's my new favorite thing. So yeah. it's a mean group. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bob, you, you seem like if something happened to your audio, it's like you're underwater. Maybe just that, maybe that the, yeah, Is I'm not sure what happened. But it may just be a sign that we've gone over and the internet the internet gods are saying that it's time to close. I don't know. So I turned, I turned, I turned my volume right up, thinking it was me, and then Stephen yeah, no, spoke, and I went happened. boom in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're done anyway. All right. Oh my God. Okay. We we are out of time anyway. So uh, thanks to everybody. Can you hear me at all? It's, you you sound like you. you you sound like you're somewhere far away. Yeah. 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 I don't know what happened to my mic. This happened last another time once too, but all right. Oh yeah, when we had to stall and try and look, look like we knew yeah. what we were talking about in your absence. <laughs> <laughs> that was hard. Yeah, we were like, oh, anyway, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Everybody go home and have a good stiff drink while they watch the election results. Victoria, any news <laughs> from Philly? Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I did not. Oh, I just I just got word. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have any. I don't know what the election is. I don't know. I don't know. We got to get gritty on this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go up to South Philly. Yeah. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye. Bye.